0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned. Immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week it is going to be the turn of Robin Crutchfield, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, and everything else. Anyway. Um, The American artist, best known as one of the founding members or musicians of the American no-wave scene and was, um, yes, instrumental in forming DNA alongside various other people and went on to be part or is part of uh, Dark Day and um, all that exciting malarkey. Anyway, after several minutes of casual chat with Robin, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. So important. Anyway, Robin, tell us more about your formative years. It's over to you.
1: Okay, well, I was born in Dayton, Ohio in 1952, and uh, we moved to southeastern Pennsylvania in 1960, uh, just after I'd finished first grade. So I don't remember too much before uh, from the Ohio (laughs) years. And then I was in Pennsylvania uh, until I'd finished college and moved to New York around 1973 or or four. So um, in in my childhood, um, I don't remember too much about music. My parents had one of these big old fashioned um, cabinets, these big pieces of mahogany furniture that was a combination uh, black and white television radio and record player all in one and they had maybe a half a dozen to a dozen records and that was about it right and uh the the ones that i remember being the three i remember most being influenced by from their collection uh, one of them was um an Album of seventy eights by John Sebastian Senior. Uh, you, you, I'm sure you're familiar with John Sebastian from the Love and Spoonful. His father mm. was a famous uh, harmonic, uh, classical harmonica virtuoso. So he played these, you know, bizarre classical pieces on harmonica, um, like the Fire Dance and and just you know wonderful things. Then there was another guy uh, named Fred Lowery, who was a, a blind whistler. And he just, he was like this solo uh, soloist that um, used his voice, used whistling as his um, instrument. And it was very haunting really? kind of music. So both of them are pretty dramatic. And then the third one was the soundtrack to... Um, the Liz Taylor movie Cleopatra that had a lot of sort of dirge like processional[s] in it. So yeah. those those three things like really influenced me from my parents' um, collection. And then in fifth grade, I was invited to a classmate's uh, patio birthday party, and that's where I discovered forty fives. He had a little record player that he played. 45s on and I'd never seen a seven inch record with a fat hole in the middle you know yes. and he, he started playing these pop records and I think about that time I had been gifted a transistor radio which were big in those days and we, you know they had a little single earplug and I would listen to that you know in, in bed at night or on the playground at school Yeah, I was pretty much a loner. But at that birthday party, I remember the first record that appealed to me. It's weird, all my my early influence choices. The the first one was a single by this band called The Rooters. And they were, I guess you'd say a surf rock band. And their big hit was this one called Let's Go that was punctuated by clapping. It was sort of like a a cheerleader kind of, you know, stadium kind of thing. But the record that I that I heard was this one called Stingray. And at the time, there was this really popular car, the Corvette Stingray. And this particular song was punctuated by um, a rhythm beeped out on the car horn of the Stingray. And so that was the first single I ever bought, Stingray by the Rooters.
0: Right. That's quite hip and groovy. So was surf music something that, you know, like Dick Down, people like that and yeah, um, yeah the Beach Boys, was that a sound that you were particularly, you know, like drawn to?
1: Not so much. Um, I think probably, I, I mean, it was, you know, pretty uh, mainstream rock and roll at the time. But it was also, I think, it was that that gimmick of the car horn and that um, that punctuated sound that uh, really appealed to me. That was, I like quirky stuff, so (laughs) I think that that really appealed to me. Then I I started collecting. Oh, I don't know, the the Beatles, the Four Seasons, uh, the Supremes. They were all big on my collection list until I started branching out into other leslie gore <laughs> um lots of girl group stuff and uh yeah so it wasn't yeah it wasn't so much surf music i had a few beach boys songs and yeah safaris wipe out and pipeline by the chantais, but that was about it really
0: and, you know. and were you was art sort of appearing you know were you sort of intrigued with any kind of artwork that was kind of happening there was like was it Richard Hamilton who was kind of the pop art, you know, like original? Well, people?
1: it was a little early for me. My, actually, my parents were both artists, and they both met in art school in Ohio. Um, but my mother was more of a sort of, of a crafts hobbyist, and my father was more practical. He was into... Um, uh, il- illuminated manuscripts and calligraphy so calligraphy was his specialty so those were kind of practical arts that really didn't appeal particular to me but i i did uh like the fact that they were interested in art and and sort of encouraged me when i tried to make art um I would sit a lot at the kitchen table at breakfast time before school. With was always a pad and pencil at the table, and while I was waiting for mom to make breakfast, I would scribble out little doodles and drawings and things. So yeah, I spent a lot of time in my childhood yeah. making making art.
0: Quite an, it was quite an avant-garde childhood then. Or you know, you know, it was quite open to ideas. It wasn't that conventional, or you know, um, I don't
1: know. Yeah. I don't think um, I took an interest in famous artists until probably uh, junior high or high school years when I discovered things like surrealism and pop art, you know, Mm -hmm. Dali and Magritte and Warhol, I guess, were sort of the big, big three for me Mm -hmm. at the time until I discovered others later on.
0: What about Jackson Pollock?
1: didn 't know anything about him at the time, not until much later yeah yes,
0: so when you got to the um, the late sixties when we 'd had the summer of love sixty seven which was every every everyone 's favorite year from that period, and there would be the counterculture and the hippie movement, and then obviously, as with all movements there 's a sort of a honey there 's a honeymoon there 's the sort of slight marriage, and then there 's all the, oh, some tricky arguments and then divorce you know by the end of the sixties you know we 'd have got the manson and then Woodstock was a bit of a disaster, but it was, it filmed well. And then you've got Altamont, and then everyone, not everyone, three people died, you know, Hendrix, Joplin, and Morrison. So there was definitely a feeling that the party had gone slightly sour by then. Did you, were you picking up on that kind of vibe as well?
1: Yeah, yeah, everything changed. Well, actually, first I remember going from a, an AM transistor radio to uh, being gifted an AM FM radio and discovering all the FM channels that started playing album sides and psychedelic music and folk music and things that you didn't really hear on AM radio. And so actually at the time I was really into the incredible string band was like, you know, Mm. one one of my favorites and still is a favorite. But then I think I sort of veered away from that into more kind of popular psychedelic music that other people my age were into. Yes. So I, I kind of shifted away from them and then came back decades later. But... Uh,
0: you, yeah. Yes, Water, Water. I just remember that song by the Incredible String Band. Be More Like Water. I can't remember what the song was titled, but I think it's from The Hangman's Beautiful Daughter, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah classic poetry but then yes yeah, so when the 70s appeared there was a bit of a new scene in town wasn't there there was the sort of you'd had we'd had to kind of grunt grunt not the grunge but the sort of that that studio's mc5 the nuggets with the sonics and people like that and then in the uk we had a sort of the glam movement with people like sweet and slade and then you'd had t-rex and then alice cooper doing schools out so were you by then sort of developing a bit of a musical interest
1: well, before that, actually, I mean, um, I'm gay, and I grew up in Pennsylvania where there was no gay visibility or representation at all. So it's pretty much in the closet until I had discovered this television show on PBS called The Louds, and American Family feature, which I don't know if you're familiar with, it uh, was a documentary featuring this California family that was pretty hip and uh, of all their kids, one of them, Lance Loud, was very flamboyant and gay. And, and he and his friend, Christian Hoffman, spoke a lot about you know going to New York City and Andy Warhol and the factory and uh, the New York Dolls and, and uh, stuff like that. So that really kind of intrigued me. And also at the same time, there was a magazine called rock scene that was uh, quite wonderful that had uh featured things like uh i think i think for a while um after lance after the show was over lance and christian had moved to new york and lance had a um a little column uh in rock scene and then also jane county who was then wayne county had a fantastic column about uh accessorizing with like torn up nylons and toilet paper rolls and crazy <laughs> things like that. Yes. And then also Patti Smith would write reviews. And so, I mean, I was exposed through magazine to this culture in New York city that sounded fantastic. And they were talking about, you know, the New York dolls and television and, and it all seemed really exciting. And I had met, I was working at the time in a bookstore in the local mall, and I uh, there was a paperback that had come out about uh, the Louds, and American family. And I remember shelving books and seeing this other person looking at the book. And so I struck up a conversation. It was the first gay person I'd met. And we soon became fast friends and then ended up, you know, exploring the the scene through rock scene magazine and and buying records and then ultimately you know moving to new york together mm-hmm. and and so that's kind of how i i came on the scene but when i was in college i i studied art i did have a a few guitar lessons as a teenager i think maybe i learned how to tune a guitar and play about seven chords but guitar didn't really interest me but um i art really did and um when i was in college i discovered this magazine called avalanche that featured uh performance art and minimalism and uh conce- conceptual art and these things really interested me and uh one of my uh, my college professors kind of turned me on to the magazine and That drove me more than anything to get to New York because I really considered myself a serious artist at the time and I was moving from painting and sculpture into conceptual art and performance art. And that's where a lot of it was taking place in New York City. So I was dying to get here in order to to partake of the performance art scene. And then, then when I got here, that all kind of changed <laughs>
0: but before that we had um you know in san francisco you had the coquettes didn't you and and that kind mm-hmm. of scene did you were you aware of of that kind of that kind of quite over the top not
1: be, not beforehand i don't think unless i had seen possibly photographs or mentions in the rock magazine but uh when uh my friend david and i moved to new york um Two of the cockettes, I think, um, Hibiscus and Angel Jack uh, were performing theater in a little dump of a theater on the Lower East Side. I mean, uh, the city was really crazy back then. It looked sort of like bombed out Europe after the war. I mean, there were blocks where it was just like rubble and it was kind of dangerous territory. And they performed in these theaters that I don't think, you know. You, you were lucky if there was heat in the building and electricity, you know, you, you'd yeah. go in all bundled up in your coats and, you know, get into these dusty seats and watch performance improvisation on the stage. And here were Angel, Jack and Hibiscus all in feathers and glitter and, and, you know, running around on the stage, doing all kinds of crazy song and dance. And I mean, it was, it was, wild and fun and experimental but um very cutting edge and very unusual and not really not part of the music scene at all the music scene from the 70s um, uh, aside from wayne county was very straight um i think um i mean you know you had the dolls and um Wayne County and that and you you had glam stuff that wasn't really performing locally in the clubs but that was all all seemed sort of surface they weren't really gay people they were just like putting on makeup and glitter and you know most of them had girlfriends and you know straight relationships and so on so there wasn't much of a representation that sort of expanded more in the 80s but
0: yeah you know, I think in the performance art, I know there was a lot of those kind of happenings in in London, especially because there was a couple of people and scenes. And I remember there was a particular artist called Bruce Lacey who, you know, I mean, he was, you know, he was probably very, he probably wouldn't have been heard of in America, but he he used to do a lot of stuff, often bringing in sort of, uh, I don't know, North American Indian ritual as well as kind of hippie ritual. And it always ended him sort of naked with lots of paint and feathers jumping around, various kind of fertility symbols. It was all very happening. I think, you know, I think that part of the sixties kind of unearthed a lot of people wanting to do those kind of performances, which were obviously very ephemeral because, you know, apart from if unless you could film it, which most people didn't, no one will remember them. So yeah, it was quite it was quite interesting. But then when I'd come across the cockets and and their moment where they went and performed in New York after, you know, being based in San Francisco and it not really going down well. I don't think they um the theater company lasted that much longer after that, really.
1: One of the biggest influences on me earlier on actually was Yoko Ono uh, because she had this book that came out called Grapefruit. That was, um, she was actually from the Fluxus art movement in the late 50s, early 60s and grapefruit was very much in keeping with that conceptual art thing if you're not familiar with it it's sort of a pocket-sized volume and each page has a kind of a one-liner that's a sort of um poetically suggestive of some action to take and um and they were it was they all they were almost like little definitions of performance pieces and it really intrigued me that you could create art through a thought or a concept rather than actually having to use uh, visual mediums, uh, media. Um, So she influenced me a lot uh, in terms of art and also uh, not, I didn't know it at the time, but also music that would be uh, later to come for me.
0: Yes. So, so with that scene, I don't know if rock scene, was that part of what Danny Fields was connected with? Was that his? his...
1: Uh, it sound, That sounds familiar. Yeah. And I'm thinking Lisa something. I can't think of her name.
0: Oh, yes. Uh, Lisa
1: Robinson. Lisa Robinson.
0: And, yes, because yep. I think it was in rock scene that Danny mentioned that The quote about the Beatles being bigger than Jesus which kind of got into a lot of trouble but I think Danny liked doing things like that so you know it just kind of happens doesn't it really stirring stuff up a bit but then but then with 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 the sort of New York scene that you moved in which was the was at the mid-70s when you you became you know like the early I suppose the early punk movement started to appear obviously with New York Dolls but then with the Stooges and then eventually with the Ramones, with all that CBGBs and um, Max's Kansas City and the Mud Club. So was that was was that all sort of just about to happen just when you arrived? Yeah, there? well,
1: yeah, what we uh, we moved here in 74, I believe it was, 74, 75. And um, at the time, there were only two clubs, um, CBGBs and Max's. And... I don't remember seeing or hearing of any bands performing at CBGB's before we'd heard about television. I think they sort of like cracked the scene cause, because I think before that it was more like a biker bar with uh, if they had bands at all it was probably you know Country. very very different kind of music yeah <laughs> and I, I think we read about television in rock scene and were intrigued about them and then after we moved here, we heard they were performing there and went to um, to check them out. Yes. But when when I got here, I was very much a very. I was still a very. While we we did were interested in music, I wasn't at that time interested in playing music because I was too serious about making it as an artist. So I was spending a lot of my time down in Soho and Tribeca. At lofts and gallery openings and performances and so forth, and doing my own thing um, down there. Meanwhile, my um, my roommate and friend David started getting interested in uh, music. Well, he had played the piano already, and um, we we were meeting people at gallery open openings, and he met um, Susan Springfield, and they formed this band called the Erasers and decided to uh, play an audition night at CBGB's. So that kind of got the ball rolling. At that time, I thought artists are, mu- are serious people, musicians are not. And if I move from art into music, no one will ever take my art seriously again. <laughs> yes. But that wasn't necessarily the case. Um, there were actually people sort of making that transition Um, Philip Glass was a big influence at the time and he wasn't really part of the rock scene it was more like contemporary classical I guess but he was uh, um, showcasing his work through art galleries like the Holly Solomon Gallery and they uh, I think backed um, a vinyl release a recording of his music and I was really intrigued by his music because of the the cyclical, repetitive, uh, minimal nature of it that really appealed to me. And I I kind of felt like I wanted to make music, but I didn't really feel adequate to do it. I mean, I've always had this, this uh, conflict between being labeled an artist or a musician. I feel confident being labeled an artist because I had art, training and schooling right and but not so much musician because i think when people say oh you're a musician uh, they sort of expect to hand you sheet music and that you should be able to sit down and play it or they say oh can you play this familiar tune i can't do any of that whereas with art they don't have the same expectations because art is so wide open. They don't expect you to sit down and paint the Mona Lisa, you know? So it's, it's a whole different kind of thing. And uh, I just felt really inadequate when it came to music. I think I really embraced um, later on when Brian Eno, I believe coined the term non-musician, because I think that's really, what i am i'm more of an artist and a non-musician or maybe i'm a sound artist rather than a musician because i've always been more comfortable working in the studio and layering um little loops and pieces of sound more than um rehearsing and performing live and and studying music you know yes
0: because um i mean when i mean obviously you you still spent a few more years doing the art. But then you, you know, you were sort of drawn into sort of being well forming the band, weren't you? D N A.
1: Yeah, well, at some point it was, I don't even quite know how that happened. I I oh I I was doing a performance piece at Artist Space called Nursing is an art. And I I uh, actually was working at a bookstore at the time, and I was buying a lot of 48 cent books off these carts outside, and they were old out of print you know medical texts and things with odd photographs in them and and uh I had designed a um a postcard announcing this performance piece nursing is an art and it depicted a 1950s uh illustration of this nurse preparing this enormous syringe and I I uh, remember I was on Canal Street one night and walking with some friends, and we ran into uh, Lydia Lunch and uh, James Chance, and I guess I had met her before, I'm not sure where, but I said to her, I I handed her the, the postcard, and she was thrilled with it. She was intrigued with it because of the the nature of the visuals of the, the nurse with the enormous syringe. Mm. And she said, oh, you should come see us. We're, James and I have a new band we're starting. It's called The Scabs. We're going to play at CBGB's this weekend. So, oh, So I said, yeah, great. So we went to see them. And I didn't know what to expect. And I was completely blown away because up till then, all the rock music I had seen had been very chord rock oriented. And Lydia's approach with Teenage Jesus and the Jerks was completely different. Um, if there was any fluence at all, I might say it was more akin to something like Captain Beefheart. But she had her; she had very little to no skill, and yet she played these very punctuated pieces. It was all about punctuation and rhythm over melody you know and uh the concept was just so brilliant I couldn't believe it and I don't I don't even know if she was 16 years old yet I mean she was really young but I was just completely blown away that this young woman was creating this amazing thing that she had come up with this concept and I sort of feel like it was like the height of invention and it's. I don't really feel like she's quite ever lived up to it since, but I mean, it it really made an influence on me. And after the first performance, I ran backstage with tears streaming down my face. I was so overwhelmed by it. And I asked her, you know, if if she, if I could join the band, I think at that point I had inherited uh, from my, my roommate, his old electric keyboard. And she basically said to me, "Oh, no, you know what?" She said, "The band has too many people in it already. I'm trying to get rid of James and take away one of Bradley's drumsticks." So (laughs) she said, "Why don't you start your own band?" And I, I I said, "Well, do you have any suggestions? You know, uh, people to work with?" And she suggested two people. One of them were these sisters uh, that were 15 and 14 years old that were the the Jerks Roadies, and the other one was Ardo Lindsay. Right. And they were in, you know, he was in the audience. There was, there was a small group of people that sort of supported each other. So it was Ardo who was friends with all the members of Mars that I got to know. And uh, so I was sitting at a table talking to him, and he. we were interested in a lot of the same things. We were the same age. And he actually owned an electric guitar. The The girls were like too much younger and I didn't have any connection to them. And he was interested in um, Vito Acconci and performance art and so forth. So we had some things in common. So we started talking and, and talked about ideas and concepts of music. And they were interesting enough. And I thought, okay, you know. I can do this. I mean, she sort of opened the door for me in a way because up till then I thought, well, I don't have the musical capacity to do this. I mean, I could do, you know, three to five note sequences repeated over and over. That wasn't really enough to pull it off until I saw what she did. And I thought, oh my God, the the door is open. Anybody can do anything now, you know? (laughs) Yes. And the thing about keyboards that I liked is anybody can play a keyboard because all you have to do is turn it on. And if you've got fingers on your hand, you push a button down and it makes a noise. So anybody out there that wants to make music, you know, from the very most primitive thing, just get yourself a keyboard.
0: Right. Top tip. There you go. So were you, I mean, at that stage, I mean, obviously it's now sort of well narrated narrated you know the sort of the world of the ramones and the sex pistols and the clash and the dam and and um yes that kind of punk scene was that at all of interest to you or did you find that a little bit kind of mainstream
1: um it it's funny because um a lot of my contemporaries people i was hanging around with um were interested in the clash and the sex pistols and all the British bands and stuff and the Ramones and all that it's that's still kind of chord related rock and it really didn't appeal that much to me it didn't seem all that experimental and I was more interested in the again the quirky or the unusual I don't think it was uh I did like suicide you know and that that was very uh intense and repetitive and sort of electronic and hard driving. And, uh, but also, um, um, I was interested in things like craft work and Yellow Magic Orchestra. But the ones that appealed to me the most were the ones that came along towards the end of the 70s and into the early 80s, like um, the Young Marble Giants and the Raincoats.
0: Yes. And what about people like Wire and? Um... I don't know, There's, there was Wire, The Gang of Fall, there was Peel, you know, Public Image I, Limited and and sort I, of, yeah, and The Fall as well, but they might've been a bit later, but you know, quite sort of odd sort of sounding bands.
1: I didn't really have a lot of exposure. I'm not even sure how I discovered the groups that I did. A lot of it might've been either through friends that recommended or played them or, or maybe just, gambling on album covers or reviews that i'd read or something but i didn't have very much money uh spending money in fact i didn't have a proper synthesizer i had this second hand electronic keyboard and in those days if you wanted a synthesizer i mean the cheapest one i think was 800 something to a thousand and up you know and I, i was working a um minimum wage day job paying my rent and food and bills you know so i didn't have a lot of extra spending money for equipment we were but we were doing things like um, buying little effects boxes and running things through effects boxes and even on my second album i started by we used a lot of toy instruments that we amplified and and treated through effects boxes because you know, you might have to pay, you know, $1,000 for a synthesizer, but at that point you could get a Casio keyboard for 100 or a little bit more and an effects box for about that or less and get an intriguing sort of sound approximating yes. uh, a synthesizer. Um, and I, I remember um, Glenn Branca's girlfriend, uh, Barbara S., she formed this band called Y Pants, and their whole band what played toy instruments uh, sent through effects boxes. So, um, yeah,
0: Innovative. Kinda... so how was how important was Brian Eno to this kind of scene? Because, I mean, obviously, you had New York, you had the clubs like CBGB's and Max's, and, and a certain community as well, but Brian Eno obviously pulls together a compilation that's kind of got, you know, become such a document now.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I'd heard his music before. I liked his music, I think on around 1972 or three, there were several albums that I really embraced. One was Hunky Dory. One was uh, Here Come the Warm Jets. And one was Annette Peacock. I'm the one. And that was kind of a big trio for me. And um, so I liked, here come the warm jets, not so much the one after kind of another green world. And then I liked, uh, I think by the time I met him and he came to New York, he was already more into ambient music, music for airports and stuff after that. But, um, I, as best as I can recall, he came to New York, I guess to check out the scene and, um, it was about a year into dna and there was this kind of transition between a lot of people in the arts moving over to music and forming bands and there were and gallery spaces were even starting to embrace alternatives um for bands to play um week-long programs as opposed to the the nightclub scene of the the clubs so artist space Uh, put on this week of bands and um, I don't know how Brian knew John Rockwell he was a writer for the New York Times but um, I don't know if he's the one that told him about this week of bands at Artist Space but anyway they came down to check it out and I don't know if he was there every night or just the the last two nights and and because uh, Mars Teenage Jesus dna and uh, the contortions had been kind of sharing bills for a while and been around longer than any of the other bands during the week we got the friday and saturday nights and those were the nights he attended and then uh i guess he was intrigued enough by the scene to want to document it before it disappeared because i think he could tell that it was going to be short-lived it wasn't going to last very long mm. so he he was renting or subletting this loft on 8th street and called us to a meeting at his house not sure how he decided on just the four bands versus the whole week you know but anyway he ended up having this meeting between the four bands and we all congregated at his place and hashed out how we were gonna do the he he had this proposal for the album and how we were gonna do it and how to divide up you know how much time each band got i think we each got four songs and half a side of an album and then i remember uh there was discussion about a lyric sheet because the lyrics were really intriguing and to a lot of bands but you couldn't always understand them when you heard the performance. So it was uh, it was sort of important to some of the people to have lyrics, but I remember James Chance didn't wanna have an open lyric sheet in there that you could read before you listen. He didn't want, he wanted people to hear the music first and then check out the lyrics. So, and he was afraid, well, if we put a lyric sheet in there. They're either gonna listen along while they're reading or they'll read the lyrics first, then listen. So he suggested having the uh inner liner uh printed inside out so you virtually had to destroy the inner wrapper in order to discover and read the lyric sheet. I'm not sure if that delayed or deterred anyone from actually reading the lyrics, you know, beforehand, but it was an interesting idea and very much part of the no wave scene of kind of like tearing everything down to The ground and starting over you know
0: yes and when 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 you did you did those four four tracks did they come together you know relatively quickly for the band
1: um well i think in every case we were we had all been rehearsing already those were uh all parts of our sets that we were playing live when we were performing out so we each picked you know the the four songs that we felt um described us best, you know, or displayed us best, and uh, only one of the four pieces that DNA did was mine, which was this very conceptual piece called Not Moving, and it was probably of all the stuff I did with DNA, it was the closest related to um, performance art, because the keyboards divided up in black and white keys, and the structure of that piece was kind of more visual than musical it started out with my fingers at the center of the keyboard and mo- my hands moving opposite directions glissandos up the keys first the white keys and then the black keys and i don't know if you're familiar with the song but the very sparse lyric is um um uh now i'm blanking out <laughs> well oh when when you move this way, I move that way. Where are we going We're not moving, not moving, not moving, not moving That's the whole lyric, and so when I say, when you went this way, I went that way. It's about a relationship, but it's also about the relationship between the two hands on the keyboard. The left hand goes this way, the right hand goes that way. So when I'm singing that, my hands are expanding across the keyboard to the outermost regions. And then when I go not moving, they're just playing two little notes side by side, two fingers in the center of the keyboard over and over again. So it was a very conceptual performance art piece i think and that was uh, sort of my big contribution to the the dna tracks so yes on
0: and that did you, and did you enjoy playing in a band with you know two other people
1: um i liked rehearsing and i i was never very comfortable live and i i think the more people there were on stage the easier it was on me because you could kind of get lost in the sound and you know more people and more stuff going on but i always felt extremely nervous and self-conscious and you know i i in order to help myself remember songs i would you know put little tapes and notes on the keyboard and i had like index cards that uh, i would uh, when we would rehearse in those days I, i'll tell you that the two most important inventions of the seventies, I think for many groups, aside from our own, were the portable cassette recorder and the photocopy machine because for me um, i couldn't in order to play the keyboard and remember songs we would we would sort of jam in the in the recording i mean in the uh, rehearsal space. And I would play things, sequences over and over. And when I'd found something I'd like, I liked, I would write down uh, or illustrate, you know, where the numbers were of the keys. And also I use sort of punctuation as abbreviation, like dots, dashes, and commas to sort of help me remember the rhythms. But just to make sure I would record it on my cassette recorder. So it's like... If I knew knew where the notes were, where the keys were, and I couldn't remember exactly the rhythm from that sequence by my index cards, then I could refresh my memory by listening to it on the cassette player. And when it came to advertising gigs, we would collage or draw things together on, on eight and a half by 11 paper, and then run them off on copy machines and copy centers, and then Plaster them all over the city to uh, advertise our gigs so in those days it was you know very do-it-yourself and at the beginning of the indie movement um and uh we we were all using what we had at hand these cheap cassette recorders and, and yeah ch- cheap uh printing reproduction methods you know
0: the photocopier so important so when so the band we, well not the band but you were at a very sh- kind of a short-lived period in the band, because then you left, didn't you, 78?
1: And... Uh, yeah, I was there for about nine months. It's funny, it got started. Terry Ork from Ork Records, I he had some kind of a connection. Well, he was the uh, manager, I guess, for television, and he started Ork Records. And uh, in terms of the indie label scene, he was the first one I know of. He put out this record, Little Johnny Jewel, this 45, and then a little bit later, Patty Smith's uh, Piss Factory came out. And then after that, other people started uh, creating their own labels. And Charles Ball for a while had been Terry's uh, business partner and he started his own label, but I'll get into that in a minute. Anyway, Terry for a while was booking uh, new bands at Max's Kansas City. And Ardo at the time was uh, working at the Village Voice uh, uh, for his day job selling ad space. And somehow or other, he knew Terry. And Terry goes to him, oh, I hear you've got a new band. Do you want to play our, um, um, our new bands week, you know, at uh, Max's that I'm putting together? And, and Ardo goes, when is it? He goes, 28 days from now. And he's, okay, okay, sure. You know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he tells us, we go back to the rehearsal space. And at that point, Ikkaway wasn't even in the band. It was me and Ardo and uh, Gordon Stevenson and his wife, Muriel Cervenka, who's uh, uh, the sister of um, X scene from X. We were rehearsing in their loft in Tribeca. And when they heard that we had a gig to play in 28 days and we didn't have a set together nearly at all, they completely freaked out and said, no, 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 no way. We can't do it. We can't do it. And they jumped ship. I thought, well, great. You know, we're going to play in 28 days. It's me and Arda. What are we going to do now? And we, we had to find a new rehearsal space and uh, Lydia at the time had a, a loft that she was renting out. And She had a Japanese uh, drummer or no, sorry, bass guitarist in the band. And there were all these hangers on about the rehearsal space. And the only one that wasn't in the band at the time was the Japanese uh, bassist girlfriend, Ikawe. And she didn't play any instruments and didn't speak any English hardly, you know? And, and so Ardo approached her and asked her if she wanted to be in the band and I thought, no, no, no. How is this going to work? You know, we, we've got to put together a a band, you know, a set in 28 days. We don't know what we're doing. She doesn't have any instruments. She can't speak any, hardly any English and her visa is set to expire eight days after our gig. What kind of sense does that make? You know, it's going to be a lot of effort if we can even do it to get there. And, it just seemed overwhelming to me, but you know, it was what it was. She was willing and interested. And luckily Nancy Arlen from Mars let her borrow her drum kit. So we had that. So we started rehearsing. We somehow managed to get together a set in 28 days and the rest was history. I mean, the sets were pretty short back then. Lydia did like 10 and 11 minute sets. Ours was I think 20 to 24 minutes or something.
0: Wow, that is impressive, but it's good to have a deadline <clears throat> it's you know it kind of focuses the mind, doesn't it?
1: Well, hardship drives creativity. I think the fact that you know we did have to piece together instruments and be innovative, and we had deadlines and we didn't have the best situation really kind of forced us to get more creative and i've I've always actually loved the idea of of challenges and making do on a shoestring, you know. I've done that both in my day-to-day jobs and in my artwork, and and to this day, I wa- i love watching competition shows on TV where they set challenges <laughs> and like impossible circumstances and time limits, and I'm think, you know, oh, I could do that, or I could do it better, you know. It's like. Even in the 90s, for a brief spell, I got into drag, and that was due to seeing other people and thinking, oh, I like their approach, but I think I can do it better and cheaper, you
0: know? Excellent, yes. Well, look, but then, but then, uh, so you, you know, was leaving the band quite a wrench for you, or did you just
1: Oh, 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 yeah, sorry. Thanks for bringing me back on track. (laughs) Um, yeah, so I was with them for nine months. And w- like I said, when we first started out, we didn't know what we were doing. And I thought, well, of course, you know, it's like a learning process. In fact, somebody even coined the term to describe the whole movement as avant kindergarten, nice. because it, it really was, you know, a learning, evolving, developing process. And it was kind of like, breaking down that three chord rock system into just single notes or sometimes not even notes. It was like semi-organized cacophony. And that's what kind of brings me back to the earlier reference of um, Yoko Ono because she did this album, Plastic Ono Band. And for me, that was a major influence on what I thought DNA could be because in that one, you had two L two, elements of um organization and structure versus two that were sort of like raw chaos so you had this balance of 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 chaos and order and i thought wow that's a great tension and a great interaction there and so i thought well you know i know the way ardo is playing is kind of non-playing it's all sort of like emotional bursts and spasms of sound there's no real notation involved there i thought i need to counter that and you know the only thing i can master is these short repetitive sequences what could be more ordered and structured than that so we'd play off of each other and somehow ick kind of went in between the two she was kind of Sometimes sort of order like, and other times a little more open to cacophony. And so, we I felt like we had this really nice tension and balance in the band. But I did think that you know we would improve over the course of the year and all re- our rehearsals, we would learn more and evolve and develop more. And at the end of nine months, it not only wasn't getting tighter and smoother and more evolved, it was getting more chaotic and I couldn't handle it because I was actually getting better at the order part. And Arda was going further the other direction and dragging Icaway over to his side. And I thought, "Uh Oh, we're losing the balance now. Now (laughs) it's, now it's too much chaos, not enough order. And I think what frustrated me is we would rehearse these songs like every week. And I thought, Oh, the songs will get tighter and better. Well, we were rehearsing them, and they never sounded the same twice. And I was really frustrated by that. You know, we'd go in, and it's like, what what the heck? I don't even recognize this song. It doesn't sound the same as last week or the week before. And it's it just like really, I felt it was really frustrating. So we kind of negotiated my departure. First, we were going to add a fourth member and then phase me out. And I think we we tried out a few people. Uh, I think even Bill Laswell from Material was gonna come and join us and he was like a really professional musician but um, that didn't pan out and then somehow or other Ardo found Tim Wright who had come in from. I think he was in Peru Ubu at one time and so he came in and we played together you know and so they were gonna phase Tim in and phase me out and then at the last minute, I think Ardo knew that I really wanted to leave and do other things, and he said, "Look, you know we're just going to let you go. we're going to make a clean break of it, and we'll you know do our own thing with Tim yes. so I thought that's great. that works out fine for everybody and we had already released a single with Charles Ball, and i I was actually sort of uh, Charles uh, built that label with the help of his girlfriend who held down a day job that I think basically funded the label. And she didn't really like all these noisy bands that he was working with. I don't know, Charles had a very strange uh, sensibility. But mine, I guess, was the most accessible of the musical sounds of any any of the people Charles was working with um, in terms of his girlfriend, Joanna. And I, I was I was her favourite. So he continued working with me and sort of promised to let me do a solo single on his label. And that kind of cemented my break with DNA and let me form Dark Day.
0: Dark Day, yeah. So by then, was the music, you know, the number one, you know, 24-7? There was no kind of other artistic kind of avenues that you were going down
1: um well there was a lot of i think i've heard this actually through some of the other podcasts where you've talked to people there was a lot of cross-pollinization and collaboration there were a lot of a handful of bands back then we all went to each other's performances and ensured continued bookings by being you know filling out the audience and uh and also a lot of us you know, shared time in different bands. Uh, in fact, when it came to do the single, I couldn't do it all myself. I needed some help, and um, I liked Ickoway's drumming, but I didn't want to pull her away from DNA. I didn't. I didn't want it to bring that connection along with me. The closest sounding to Ickoway on drums was Nancy Arlen from Mars. So I talked to her about doing a couple rehearsals and the studio session for my single, and she agreed as long as it was just for that and that they got paid a studio fee, and Charles agreed to that. So I got Nancy, and, you know, after that, she would go right back to Mars. So she she had no plans on forming a new band or anything and the other one was uh nina canal who was in the gynecologist and i loved that band but they were sort of on the verge of breaking up and i loved her guitar style which was very i want to say reggae it was very sort of jerk like uh note note patterns and um i just really liked her approach and also, i I'm I've always been kind of an Anglophile in a way. I don't know why. I think my heritage is you know British and Scottish. And she was you know one of the few British uh, emigres. Is that the right word? People that came over from there to here. And she yeah. was part of the part of the art scene in Soho. And, uh, um, and so anyway. I approached her and asked her if she would help on the single. So I thought this was kind of an interesting idea because um, stereotypically, the guitar and the drums in the band would be played by guys and a keyboard might be played by a gal, you know? And this was a flip on that. You know, I was playing the keyboard and the two women were on the guitar and drums. I thought, well, this is fantastic. And I love the combination of the sound and it went really well. And it's still like one of my proudest things, that single hands of the dark and invisible man. I only wish that they had opted to continue to do more with me. I wish we had more output than that because I think it was maybe my most successful sound before I went on to a revolving door of, players in dark day after that but uh
0: yes well you did exterminate an angel
1: yeah that one um that that came about well after work after doing the single with charles we talked about an album i thought okay well you know i've got to get a band together and so i started putting feelers out and um I had, one of my co-workers was uh, Luke Sant, who's a, a writer. I was working at a bookstore at the time, uh, the Strand Bookstore. I don't know if you, it's like one of the biggest used bookstores in the country. And uh, it has actually a pretty rich history uh, in terms of music people working there. Because before me, um, Patti Smith, Tom Verlaine, and Lux Interior all, Uh, from the cramps all worked there um while i was there um uh miriam lina from the cramps uh and um um susan springfield adele bertai from the contortions laura kennedy from the bush tetras um um i can't think of his name there was a guy there from the dbs and uh, uh, filmmaker Amos Poe. I mean, all these people went through the doors there um, at one time or another. But Owen Bradley Field from Teenage Jesus was working there. That's kind of how I got my job there, actually. I said, can I use you as a reference on the application? He goes, ah, I don't know if that's gonna help you. (laughs) He might not hire you if you put me as a reference on your application. But I was filling out the application. And while I was filling it out in the store, I saw no less than four other people working there that I had known from my college days in Pennsylvania. So I thought, oh, my God, you know, everybody I know works here. Nice. But uh, where was I going with that? What I was think big... it, was,
0: it, was a, it was about after you did the first single, and then I mentioned... Oh, oh,
1: how I found people. So Luke Sant was working there in, in social sciences, and he he's now a pretty well-published author. but uh, he, And he was a writer, budding writer at the time. And he knew this guy named Phil Klein. So I, I, he introduced me, and Phil and I got along. Phil had been in high school bands, and he was very much into sort of surfing rock band thing, uh, and things like, you know, The Ventures and that kind of music. So, you know, we, we rehearsed a little bit and then we were looking around for drummers. And oh, there was another uh, co-worker at The Strand, uh, David Rosenblum, who um, mm. later formed this band called Chinese Puzzle, Puzzle. But he was much more into kind of jazz fusion as related to music. You know? But anyway, we got this gig at the Mud Club. I think uh, uh, just after CBGB's and Max's, the next two clubs that popped up were um, the Mud Club and Tier 3. And Charles got us a gig at the Mud Club. And so we were ready to go. I had a guitarist, a bassist, a keyboard, but we didn't have a drummer. And I think I remembered approaching Nina. Would she be willing to just kind of like Sit in on drums, even though she didn't really play drums. But I knew she had a decent sense of rhythm. So we had a couple of rehearsals, and that worked out. But she wasn't sticking around because she's all, she'd already started to form this all girl band called Ut. So she did that, and then after that, we had to find another drummer. We tried out a few people, and ended up with Barry Fryer. I don't remember how we found him. Went in and did our our recordings uh for for exterminating angel and then we did a little mini tour of europe um oh uh, well that first gig we played at at at, uh, the mud club um this guy from belgium and now i can't remember his name but he was also a recording artist i guess he was working for the the radio over there the belgian radio and he wanted uh, some New York bands to come and play over there. So we got a little mini tour, we played in Leuven. And then while we were there, we played in Amsterdam and Rotterdam. So that was it, like a three gig mini tour and then came back. Um, but but uh, we'd also played this little, um, little um, weekend kind of thing in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota in a big, uh, empty airplane hangar. um it was called the new no now wave um festival or something Mm. and and that was fun and that had a lot of bands on it it had like um the contortions and um um some more mainstream more noisy kind of guitar oriented bands from new york but also people like judy nylon And then there were guys from Ohio and California, Tuxedo Moon was there. And I actually met the guys from Tuxedo Moon and hit it off with them the best. Because actually uh, our sound was kind of minimal and and a lot of it was high pitched. And the guitar bands sounded muddy in that space. It was a big empty airplane hangar, And so the sound just bounced everywhere and it was just like mush yeah. but the, the the you know the high pitch on my keyboard and the percussion on the drums and and Tuxedo Moon and their violin that all cut through the big space and so I mean we, we made it sound sort of like a disco cathedral whereas all the other bands were were just kind of noisy mush so We did well there. And now I'm rambling.
0: No, that's fine. fine. So, I mean, during the 80s period, I mean, just briefly, I mean, you know, New York's got that kind of reputation of being sort of swamped in drugs. Did you manage to avoid, you avoided dying, which was good. But did you sort of navigate that? Because most people, yeah, struggled during that period because of just the...
1: It's really weird because I was kind of a rebellious anti rebel or something i mean i i never caved to peer pressure and i was always very anti-peer pressure so it's like everybody wanting to smoke and drink and do drugs i wasn't having any of it in fact i didn't do any of that until 30 and 30 was kind of like okay this is my year. It's like, this is the transition year. I'm going to try everything I can get my hands on that I never tried before just to get it out of my system, you know? But prior to that, I had no interest whatsoever in smoking, drinking, or doing any kind of drugs.
0: Yes. And then, and so for the eighties though, you, you sort of, you formed your own record label, but sort of stopped recording so much. Is that right?
1: Well. Yeah, it's weird because I always felt like live performing and records were apples and oranges, but it seemed like in order to promote sales, you had to focus on the live performance. And the only one who was successful at not doing that was Eno, because everybody else, you know, it's like, oh, you know, we can't give you a record deal or anything. You can't, we can't record you unless you've got a following, unless you're willing to go out there and promote your your gigs with live performance. And I was never that comfortable doing that. I was I loved working in the studio and uh, building things, you know, with recorders and engineers and all that kind of stuff. You know not in real time where you could retake things and edit things and tweak things and change them i I love doing that kind of stuff but you couldn't can't really do that on stage you know and and since my abilities were kind of limited it was really difficult to perform live and uh as as it went on i was like losing band members left and right i kept either shifting my vision or they took up interest with other kinds of things. And, and I didn't have anything to offer because it was basically my project. And you can't really dictate, with the exception maybe of James Chance or Lydia, you can't dictate everything to your band members you have to kind of collaborate with them to keep them interested enough to want to participate, you know? Mm-hmm. And so with each incarnation of my band and different people I worked with, I kind of directed it, but I kind of opened it up to like, Oh, you know, do you have ideas or what, you know, what would you like to do with this? And, you know, we kind of collaborated, but it wasn't ideal. It was, um, 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 I can't think of the word I'm I'm thinking of where you, you kind of have to appease or go along with someone well, I rather suppose than it's
0: collaboration, isn't it? That kind of world of collaboration. Yeah.
1: It wasn't entirely my vision, let's say, you know, until, you know, later on when homes home recording and studios, you know, they had these home recording cassette multi-track players came in and then uh computers where you had software you could do that where at that point then i could do it all myself and i didn't worry so much about expertise on an instrument because it's just kind of trial and error you do it till you get the right take and then you've got it you know that's all you need so you don't have to play it perfect every single time you just need that one one time until it's recorded you know
0: yes so with the with the rest of the 80s and then kind of the 90s because it was kind of you it was the late 90s when you sort of resumed um dark day as a a sort of solo act so what what did you kind of briefly do in those kind of that that quite a large period of time
1: that was kind of accidental actually up through the 80s i think i stopped recording in 1985 cds had kind of made their entry somewhere between 82 and 84 and I liked them, and I wanted to do that. I didn't have any labels expressing any interest. And I did try doing my own little cassette label. A lot of people were doing do-it-yourself cassette labels and just kind of running off copies and photocopying graphics and stuff. And And it was all about product, too. I mean, I, lo- I love the idea of music as product, from the album cover to the cassette to the CD unfortunately now we have streaming and that's all gone you don't have something you can physically hold in your hand anymore but um so yeah I did my own label and I scraped together money from my day job in order to um buy uh have my own uh cds produced and it was really expensive because it was early in the technology you couldn't really make your own cds at that point
0: mm.
1: and you they had minimum runs and I, I i got a bid from one company and halfway through produ- production they lost their access to their print the printing portion and so i had to like find another printing company just to have the inserts and sleeves printed up for the cd's and that was a whole other expense it was kind of a nightmare but in ni- 1985 was sort of like the last where i had performed with live with any of the incarnations of my band and I, I, my my sound kept changing too from um exterminating angel then to window it was sort of like a duo like a a synthesizer or toy synthesizer duo and then after that i was uh working with uh i was very interested in an early inspiration moon dog who uh dealt a lot with rattles bells and drums and i liked i always liked him and nico because they always made music that seemed like they were not of a particular time. And so it could be from any time in history, you know? And I, and I, so I like that. And so when I formed uh, Dark Day in the mid 80s, it was like a, a little chamber orchestra. And the sound influence on that was sort of like pagan dirges. And it was, it kind of sounded like a cross between Dead Can Dance and the Penguin Cafe Orchestra.
0: Yes. So, so that's, I mean, so when you first heard Dead Can Dance, because I remember there was one particular album which was probably mm-hmm. like OA or Aeon or something like that, which we all sort of consumed with great excitement. It had this sort of a very Gothic um, quality to it. Gregorian chant, that's what I'm trying to remember. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we were like, oh, that's such an amazing sound. And it made you feel sophisticated and cool. And it was also very good. So did that um, was that a bit of a game changer?
1: No, actually, that came a little later on. I, my first exposure to them was, I think it was their second album or third, called In the Realm of a Dying Sun. I really liked that one. And then I think that Aeon was about two or three after that. I think. No. I'm not sure. It was but probably yeah.
0: it was probably eighty seven, eighty nine, actually, wasn't
1: it? Yeah. I I I liked and collected all those. At that point I was listening to things like uh Dead Can Dance, Cocteau Twins, Lush, um
0: this uh, s- Coil. S-
1: Slow Dive. Well, this Mortal Coil, mm, yes and no. I mean, there were one or two. I mean, that was kind of an amalgam of so many different people. I liked the song to the siren on that album, yes. but maybe not as much some of the other tracks.
0: Yeah. So then, so the, how? Do, so were you sort of, how did you navigate the nine? I mean, were you still sort oh. of having a day job and sort of doing art on the side, so to speak?
1: Well... uh. I didn't have anybody to work with musically uh, at that point, and I think I didn't really have um, I didn't really have a computer, I don't think, until like uh, almost 2000. And so I wasn't really making music. I was doing other things. And I think in the 90s, and I wasn't really doing art so much either, because when when a lot of people moved from performance art over into music the bottom kind of dropped out of the performance art scene and the art world for most part. And that kind of change, it went back into painting and graffiti and hip hop art and the galleries and stuff in the late seventies, early eighties. And that wasn't my thing. So, um, yeah, in the late 80s I had met, oh, and also in the early 80s, I was going to say, like I said, the 70s were very straight, the 80s were very gay. There was a bar in the East Village just called The Bar, and at, at that time, uh, most gay bars were either gay bar, gay male bars or lesbian bars that never the Twains met. Mm. But it, this one particular bar, it was Anything Goes, and everybody went there. And it was fantastic. And the East Village was very arty. There were a lot of theater people, a lot of writers, a lot of musicians. And there was a lot of cross-pollinization of bands over there. And and the Pyramid and King, King Tut's Wawa Hut started and the drag scene kind of started. And Club 57, all these new clubs in the East Village and the drag scene. So anyway, yeah, there was a, a lot of... A lot of people, almost all the bands I knew and hung out with in the eighties were all or 80% gay members in the band. So there were a lot of you know diverse, creative people there. But then uh, in the nineties, at some point, I think I remember I had a friend who had been doing drag and I wasn't that really into drag until um, the movie, I think Muriel's Wedding came along.
0: Priscilla, and, Queen of the Desert, that's the one.
1: Oh no, yeah, sorry, sorry, that's the one I meant, Priscilla. yeah, I think they were both around the same time.
0: Yes, but and that, the um, Strictly Dancing.
1: So when I saw the uh, the approach in Cr- Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, I thought, oh, this is very clown-like, and I, I like this, and there were, there was a contingent of drag queens in New York that weren't going for glamour, they were more like I guess it was more of a throwback to the cockettes. It was more like outrage and glam and flamboyant extremism or something. And, and they would piece together things from colorful bits they'd found from dollar stores, you know. And, and uh, I had a friend that was part of that scene. And I used to go on the weekends to Chelsea to the flea market. Uh, was it this, was this group that used to go uh, buy things at the flea market and have breakfast and he goes well why don't you come by after your um, flea market and visit me at my apartment so I came by and he and all the queens and his troupe that had performed the night before at the Roxy were coming down from their drugs in his his living room the morning after and uh, my jaw just practically dropped I was in awe I mean it was very low-key but there was this amazing array of people. And a lot of them, you, the ones that appealed to me the most used white face rather than regular makeup or in addition to makeup. And a lot of them had these expressions. I don't know if it was coming down from the drugs or the way they painted <laughs> their faces, but they had expressions like no mask, Japanese no masks that could either could be any emotion. You know, it could be all emotions in one. You couldn't quite determine what emotion it was. I thought, oh, my God, this is so powerful. And I looked at what they were doing, and a little thing went off in the back of my head, and I thought, gee, I'm intrigued by this. and I think I could do this, and I think I could do it better and cheaper. (laughs) So I, I talked to my friend about it, and he sort of like took me under his wing and helped introduce me to a few of the staples in terms of makeup and things showed me how to apply makeup and so um he got me in for free to the clubs and then you know i had developed this character and we basically we weren't really performing i mean we were there basically to cheer up cheer on the crowds we were basically glorified go-go dancers up on platforms and stages just to supply color and cheer and amusement to the people under the strobe lights and stuff you know dancing and it was a lot of fun and i thought it it was sort of like improvisational silent theater on the stage you had these sort of interactions between different members sharing the same stage with you all in gesture and movement and attitude and stuff and it was a lot of fun so I did that for a little while just as a kind of a get get me in free guest. And then at some point, they, I got paid for it. And I, I got paid more in three hours of work doing that than almost my whole week of my day job. So I did that for a little while. That was in the mid-90s for maybe two years. And then the management changed and that whole drag troupe got dropped from billing and they all just kind of went their separate ways and the scene sort of fell apart but
0: yes.
1: that was the mid 90s then in the late 90s i think uh well, I, I got approached by dirk ivans who ran this label in belgium called daft records and he he liked my music from early dark day and talked about sort of bringing me out of retirement and And, you know, first he wanted to reissue my stuff on CD, my early stuff. And so I wasn't sure where I was at legally with that, with Charles Ball, but I thought, well, how's he gonna know? And he never gave me any money anyway. So like we, I said, look, in case he wants to release it, you know, in the original uh, form, let's not outright re-release the whole albums as is but we'll do a compilation of kind of best dub tracks so so he did a we we worked together and we did this cd compilation with uh the single and some stuff from the from the ep and the two different albums and so he put that out and then i got kind of excited because he sounded like he wanted to work with me and maybe let me do a, a new album so Then I met up with a friend who introduced me to um, home recording software on the computer and sort of helped me learn how to use it. And I started recording stuff, multi-track MIDI stuff myself, and I was happy with the results, and I presented it to Dirk, and his attitude was, I can't use this. I don't know how to market it. And I thought, what? (laughs) It it was all instrumental for one thing. And I think that's a problem for some people, which I also don't get because that appeals to me. And half the time you can't hear lyrics anyway. So even though you might hear a texture in a voice, you can't always make out the lyrics. But I was never that thrilled with my vocal abilities or my, my lyric abilities. A lot of the lyrics were sort of, piece together like collage work from different books and things so um so anyway i I had recorded this stuff and and he said i can't i can't use it i can't put it out i can't market it and i i was really disappointed but at that point i thought okay if he's not going to do it i've already done the work i guess i'll do it myself and at that point you could um run off or make your own cdrs so i did that so i you know sort of re restarted my label sort of and uh but around um uh, a little bit after that or during that i had pretty much decided i it was y2k and they were talking about in the year 2000 because of y2k everything's going to crash there's going to be no electro electronics and i don't know why i got that into my head and i kind of embraced it and ran with it i thought okay I'm not going to buy any synthesizers. I'm not going to run with electronics anymore. I'm going to embrace acoustics. So I I went back. And also at the time, I think there was this weird folk music scene that started. And I I got interested in that because it brought me back to my early love of the incredible string band and world music instruments and stuff, which I also think the raincoats kind of took in back in the early 80s. But anyway, so I started buying things like harps and psalteries and lyres and, and drums and rattles and th- things like that, that I particularly liked. And uh, so they were all acoustic instruments, but I basically just used the, uh, the desktop recording software and layering techniques to sample and record those much in the way um, that uh, another another group I really loved from the early 80s, um, Simon Fisher Turner had this short-lived uh, alias project called Dufia, uh, two girls that was uh, him and, uh, I can't remember the other guy's name, something Tucker, I think, um, they, they build up this whole mythos about these two women that had met in Lourdes and under mysterious circumstances and, and decided to tour the, the cafes and pubs and, and record together. And it, was, it was this whole melodramatic, false story, you know, right down to like gauzy photographs of them in drag. And nobody knew that these weren't, you know, very strange, exotic women. That, but two guys, you know, working doing studio stuff. But their their recordings were basically sampled acoustics that had been uh, tweaked and played with in the studio. And that they did a couple albums that were amazing. If you haven't heard them, Silence and Wisdom, mm. and and Double Happiness. And so that was a big inspiration for me um, in terms of playing with acoustic sound. And another one was. Uh, uh, I can't think of his n- name now, this guy in the 60s that went through the South and recorded all these old blues artists on their front porches just with a reel-to-reel.
0: Oh, is that did... Annie, um, Alan Lomax?
1: It might be. I think I might be thinking of John Hammond too. But anyway, one of those guys, but it was basically field recordings. And the thing I liked about the field recordings is it w- it was like live to tape, and it was like there was no rehearsing no dubbing no editing it was all you know you record it and it's the magic of the moment and i really like that i like that idea of you know you just record it if you don't like the take you re-record it and at some point you get a take that works you you caught the magic you captured the magic and that really appealed to me so that's kind of what i've been working with the last since 2000 i guess
0: (laughs) yes because actually it was a very um one that i was listening to earlier which was it had a very pagan it reminded me of a lot of friends who used to go through a very pagan new age period in the 90s and i remember thinking oh this really brings back those kind of memories which are probably into the dark wood that was what it was called
1: oh yeah um, that, yes. that one, actually, I did incorporate a couple of electronic things and I, and well, one, I played a theremin on there. I bought a cheap little theremin and I mostly used it as a, uh, for a little effect, but I managed to be able to do a a repeatable riff and disguise it enough with reverb if it wasn't quite perfect to be close enough to sounding the same, to be able to use it as one of the layers in the background.
0: Yes. So basically you've, 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 you've sort of released that you, so now for the last couple of decades, you've, you've just been very much more consistent with releasing your own material the way you want it.
1: Yeah, I had been. And then, you know, with, with the drop uh, and I had hooked up with cdbaby.com and they were great for me because they would handle all the sales and distribution of any product I wanted to send. Plus um, you could upload the digital stuff and then people could buy the digital downloads too. And they would just handle all the business end, and then send me money on the sales, which was fantastic because I've always been terrible at the business end of music and art. And But recently they got rid of their store and so they don't sell CDs anymore, I guess. And I don't really have an outlet for that. And also there's no real demand anymore. The, the whole scene has changed. And uh, so people are not buying CDs. They're, if, if they're buying anything, and I think most of them are getting them for free, it's streams. And uh, and there's no, nobody really coming out of the woodwork asking me to do things or want me to do things i post things at like little uh youtube clips uh, like little one minute home live performances and things and i get you know some so many likes clicked and that's it it doesn't doesn't translate into sales or offers or anything and i think attention spans are just really short now it's like people will be on there for as long like commercial length you know like a minute to three minutes and then their attention is exhausted and they move on and that's part of the whole social media scene and youtube and all that stuff you know
0: yes and but you also you you've continued with your kind of art art world and you brought out some books with your artwork in you know a few lines the the art of robin lee crutchfield
1: Yeah, I've done a couple things. Well, I, you know, I got back into art in the early aughts. Um, uh, There's the the Leslie Lohman Museum of Gay and Lesbian Art. They also, they had a museum in Soho and also a studio and the studio space had, um, live nude uh, models and drawing groups and workshops and things and a friend of mine was hosting them for a while and he invited me to come I thought okay you know I'll come and so I, I did I started doing drawing again I think art is one of those things that's really a discipline that you have to keep doing otherwise you fall out with it you don't you don't do it which is kind of the case with me. I got into the habit of, you know, going and doing these minimal line drawings and watercolors there. And I had amassed quite a few after a year. And then I just, I found this self publishing thing online where there was no money up front or inventory involved. It was a pay as you go. You uploaded the uh, the files and created this book. And then they did, you know, like C D Baby, they took care of all the sales and distribution like people could order it they'd print it and ship it and bill them and pay you which I liked. The problem the problem with those things that make everything so easy to do it yourself now is because it's that easy, unlike the the old days with labels where it was a corporate company deciding who got the privilege of being on their label. now everybody can do it themselves and it's great but you also have thousands or millions of other people out there competing with you for the market. So it's harder and harder for people to find you and support you. Yes, and it
0: is. It is. It is different. Cause I didn't realize that at the time, but, um, was this at the time, but you know, you had those gate, gatekeepers, you know, there was there was less avenues, but you knew that if it was on a record label, or a certain DJ like in the UK we had John Peel if he played something it would get a you know it would have an instant market and we had the music papers like the NME, Melody Maker, Sounds Record Mirror so again there was those and then you had lots of indie you know every town and city in in Norwich in the UK would have um, at least one venue that you know an alternative night would happen and and you'd have You'd be able to get 150, if not 200 people, who would go along on a Monday night to see a band who was relatively unknown. But you know, it just kind of created, it kind of directed people, navigated people into a scene. Whereas now, I have no idea.
1: (laughs) Well, it's 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 a couple of things have kind of reinvigorated my career. one of them is uh, Josh Cheon has this vinyl uh, le- reissue label of proto synth music. He's out of San Francisco. It's called Dark Entries Records. And he approached me a few years ago about reissuing all my vinyl stuff because Exterminating Angel was a big influence on him in his childhood. He's was more like a child of the 90s, I guess, but he was really intrigued. Um, with all this you know, early uh, analog synth music. And so he's been reissuing all these obscure early synth uh, musicians and, and bands on his label. And he paid me fairly decently. And because he's really good and has a whole huge stable of people on his label, uh, it's drawn interest from a lot of sources and gotten a lot of publicity and and he also dj's so he dj's with a lot of this music and that you know that gets Mm. new interest and then also uh, who knew you know that historically there would be like you're doing now that there would be some interest 30 40 years later in music from the 70s or the no wave era or new wave era that all these galleries and podcasts and art shows and things are doing. I mean, there was a big show a couple of years ago at the Museum of Modern Art about the Club 57. And I had a couple of things in there. I had done um, some experimental films and the museum actually bought my films for their archives. So, I mean, I actually now can claim to be um, and I can finally claim to be a famous artist with who has work in the Museum of Modern Art. You know,
0: <laughs> I know. Well, it's interesting because I think it's. I think thirty years is a sort of a passing of time where <clears throat> things. <clears throat> sorry about that. Um, things become a little bit more like. Oh, actually, that's really interesting. We must keep that and put it in a gallery or put it in a book. Because actually, recently, I've been picking up quite a lot of books. And there was one which was just about the graphic, you know, the punk and um, what's it called? Punk and post-punk graphics from 76 to 86. I wonder
1: if I'm in there. I've gotten a a few like that that have come before that use my uh, single covers and and things. Yeah.
0: And then, and then obviously there was a book on the mud club that just came out a couple of years ago from some guy. And there's an interest. Yeah. In, I mean, there's a certain interest that I think for various reasons, which you go, could go into for great, detail, great details. And it's not really about rose tinted sunglasses. I think it's it's like at the time when something happens, you think, oh, that's marvellous. And you throw it over your shoulder and you get on to the next thing and then you have time to reflect and then you realize, actually, some of this is incredibly good. Like the artwork, the flyers, the posters, yeah. you know, some of the music is like, actually, at the time, you know, we just we, we took it for granted because you would take anything that's happening at the moment for granted. But when it suddenly you have a chance to look back and analyze it a little bit more you can sort of pick up things that you missed the first time. And also you pick up things that you completely missed because you didn't always have access to be able to listen to something or see something. So I think you suddenly think, actually, this there's something a bit more interesting about this than what we took it for. But you, you can't put something in a gallery when it's happening. But I think 30 25, yeah. 30 years later, you can start to have a, a reflection on it and, and to sort of look at it again through slightly different... Kind of a different
1: Well, it, w- it was such disposable stuff, it kind of amazes me that enough people held on to memorabilia yes. from the time in order to make a show out of. But I, I was actually disappointed in the Mud Club book because I was told I was in there and I scoured the pages to find me. And of all the things to say... He took a piece out of context of an interview where I described the physical attributes of Charles Ball. It's like, my God, you know, I, I had so much to say about the art and music scene and you didn't want to know what Charles Ball looked like. Well, Charles Ball was an oddity at the time because he basically wore cardigans all the time. He sort of looked like a preppy... College man, or something, nothing like, you know, the no wave or punk scene of black clothing or leather or any of that stuff. But I mean, it's kind of neither here nor there. But, you know, all, all they wanted to know, they didn't ask me anything about DNA or dark day or the art scene. They just took a little quote about my description of. What Charles Ball wore and what he looks like—that
0: is disappointing. (laughs) So, look, just last question. I mean, if you if you could say something to an eighteen-year-old self, you know, just a little bit of advice, and you've got decades actually of life and art. I
1: thought about this a little bit. Mm. am i allowed to put in a little plug or no yes
0: put in a plug that would be good i don't know
1: before i do that before i answer your question let me say anybody that wants to uh, find me i'm on facebook robin crutchfield i don't have a website anymore i think there is a link on a wikipedia page for me to find my facebook page and uh If you want to find my book of fairy tales that I wrote or my book of drawings, those are both through lulu.com. It's a self-publishing book company. Um, I think one's called 11 Fairy Tales by R.L. Crutchfield. And the other one is, you gave me the title. I've forgotten. It's something like the line drawings or,
0: Oh yes, uh, the, a uh, um, a few a, lines. A few
1: lines, yeah. A few lines. I actually had a, an epiphany a few years ago that I'm quite the minimalist because no matter what I do, it seems to be a maximum output from a minimum of effort. It's like all my all my music is like minimal bits of things over layered and uh my drawings are communicated in the briefest number of lines and uh, I also do crochet art that was basically um, just you know a loop pulled through a loop over and over again and it's just very simplistic um, oh but anyway i I'll, I'll, and I also recently put it published two um, tarot decks and one is a majors only deck and the other is a full 78 card deck and those are both available through makeplayingcards.com. Uh, play makeplayingcards.com. The first one's called, um, the open face tarot, and the second one is the eyes wide tarot. So right. that's okay. th- that's business done. Um, business. Except, except for my music, I don't think there's anywhere to buy my music anymore since, uh, since, um, cd baby shut that down you can still hear it through various distribution Spotify. channels oh actually i think you can buy it on itunes still right um and if you want to hear any of it for free every single song i've ever done is on youtube so um cd baby did that they've made all all the distribution in various areas available so That's out there. Now, back to your question. I thought about this and it's a tough one to answer because I don't think, no matter what I would say to my 18 year old self, that I would listen to my advice. Because the two things that basically I think are important are say yes to more things than you say no to. That's one thing. Because at the time, I said no to too many opportunities that came up that never came back and also um, maybe take a leap of faith because i was too worried about security everybody else i knew sort of squatted in apartments they managed to get leases and jump out on their rent not me i had to sign a lease and make my rent and hold down a day job and feel secure in knowing where my rent and food money was coming from. So I didn't really take advantage of a lot of opportunities that I might have if I didn't have to rely on that. And I sort of wish somebody had been a kind of a patron and said, look, we're gonna give you an allowance. We're gonna pay you for your, we'll pay your rent and your food and your bills, but in terms of the art, you're on your own. And that would have been good because I think completely open-ended money wouldn't have given me the hardship or the challenges to make art. It would have been too easy. And you need a bit of a struggle. I, I think it sort of takes a bit of grit in a, in a shell for an oyster to make a pearl, you know? So there is that in terms of making art and we definitely had it back in the seventies. But, um, uh, but I think, uh, Yeah and also my parents were at the time pushing me to take commercial art classes and I thought oh that waters down my intent I'm a fine artist you know I I poo-pooed the idea of graphic arts or commercial art but they say oh you're gonna need something to fall back on and I could have done a lot better money-wise in my career if I had taken those classes as well it wouldn't have watered down a thing, you know, (laughs) and I I would have been able to support myself better than working minimum wage in a bookstore. So, you know.
0: Yes, this is true. I know so much. Anyway, look, Robin, this has been amazing. Thank you.
1: I'm sorry I've kept you on so long. I just looked at the clock and didn't realize how much time we spent.
0: (laughs) But it's nearly, oh, it's nearly one o'clock with you now. You can go and have lunch. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> unless you've already had lunch you don't need lunch you know, I'm trying to work out what your time is but anyway look well thank you for giving me this this has been good I'm always keen to uh, I've sort of yeah I managed to sort of do quite a lot on the kind of interest in no way you've seen of uh, New York 1978
1: I hope I've i think i've covered everything i jotted in my notes that i wanted to cover i hope i got to everything that you wanted to yeah
0: my god and amazing you know i mean just write your book that's all i'm saying <laughs> you, just, you just need to get that he's basically just to use this interview couldn't you and then just well, write do the book
1: i should do that and expand on it i already did when uh when josh released the first um uh album he included uh, a kind of a fanzine autobiography because when I first tried to do a website, I did a very long kind of autobiography. It basically boiled down to about 26 pages worth of material and lots of photos of old posters and photographs from the period. And he printed it up like a a fanzine and included it as an insert with the album and i'm not sure you might still be able to get that through uh, darkentriesrecords.com either with or without the album you could contact him and see i don't know but uh since then i'm sure i have a lot more i could add to the to the story
0: and now that is the end thank you ever so much robin for giving me the time for that interview that was me in conversation with the one and only robin Crutchfield, talking about the American music art scene. Anyway, this has been David Saw the C86 Show. If you want to contact me for some random and you can I'd make it positive, please. <laughs> and, uh, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, that's uh, C86 Show. And also all these interviews have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Just check it out. C86 Show, it's all there and much, much more. Anyway, have a great week.